All right, let's pray together and then we'll get into this final lecture. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the goodness of bringing to us all the things that we need for life and godliness bound up in your word that we can read, we can understand. You've given us a mind to comprehend these things. You've given us literacy so we can read it on our own. You've given us the uh, advantage of a church that believes in preaching the Bible uh, verse by verse, line by line. Uh, You've given us a fellowship filled with regenerate people, Uh, perhaps not every last one of us, of course, but just enough here for us to have genuine, true Christian commonality where we can share our sanctification together. God, you've given us um, way more than we need in terms of material things. Thanks for giving us all that we require just as human beings, food and shelter and clothing and all of that. And God, you've blessed us in many ways. We want to be more grateful. We'd like to be more uh, attentive to the nuances of your word. We'd like to be attentive just to the plain teaching of your word that is so often overlooked. Think about that when I read through the Old Testament in our reading through Hosea and just thinking about your holiness and your intolerance of sin in this world. And God, I just pray that we would connect with the heartbeat of what your word says because we're in it, we're thinking about it. When we're done reading it, we're contemplating it. Just give us a greater understanding of your word. And God, we know we understand your word. We understand you better. We can relate to you better. We can understand your heart. We can uh, see the things that concern you and begin to see our hearts connect with those things and concern or in terms of pursuit and ambition and all the things that are agenda items in your mind. We want those to be ours. God, thanks so much for providing uh, just this time the last semester here since September went by so quickly. But thanks for our study that's taken us all over the map in terms of topics, thinking of creation and uh, the image of God, human sexuality, and the hot topics of the day in terms of sexual ethics, uh, dealing with issues as it relates to warfare and government, and just even the things last week as we dealt with uh, inebriation and intoxication and all those things that got our, our perennial issues in, in fallen society. And God, as we wrap it all up and move towards something much more personal for us, I just pray that you make this an enriching time for us together. So open up our minds, and uh, as Christ often said, give us ears to hear the things that you'd want us to, to hear this, uh, this evening. So we ask these things in the authority of Christ. Amen. I want to end with something very uh, close to home. There's a lot of things that we've dealt with, abortion, euthanasia, homosexuality. I mean, a lot of abstract things early on, uh, historical things, creation origins. But when it comes down to it, I want to deal with the topic of fallen humanity and really zero in on you as a fallen human being and, and be able to look at God's word and see, now, how do I deal with that on a, on a daily basis? So I want to start with this question right here. Why would I want to fight temptation and avoid sin? And I've created a chart here appropriate on our last night of Compass Night uh, that may help us. And there's two headings for each column on the right and on the left. And I'd like you to fill those in and then think through these five categories as we think about the issues of, first on the left-hand side, holiness, and on the right-hand side, sin. I mean, these are the things that are clearly divided in Scripture, and they fall into one of two categories when it comes to our thought life, our behavior, our words, our attitude, the things that we do every single day, the things that we think every day, the things that we pursue every day, the things that we trust every day. These are issues that fall into these two categories, and I want to think them through as it relates, first of all, to God, and and just allow these biblical passages to give us a sense of how important this is on so many levels. For instance, Psalm 
11.7. I just don't think this passage gets enough airtime in most people's thinking or preaching. But it says, for the Lord, Yahweh, it's his proper name, wherever you see all caps, that's what we're dealing with there. God's making a very personal statement here. Uh, Yahweh is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. And the upright shall behold his face. Something about intimacy with God. Something about the pleasure of God. That God loves righteous deeds. He's not speaking of his own deeds there. He's speaking of the deeds now reflected in these uh, shareable, communicable attributes as we call them. As people reflect his holiness. And you can look at something as simple as Philippians chapter 4. When the Philippian church sent sacrificially a gift of their money to the apostle Paul. And through Epaphroditus, he got that. And he says, the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering and a sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And I think we mentioned in this setting, if not, it was on the weekend, talking about the way God connects the issue of the sacrifice and the concept of the sacrifice to that sense of aroma and smell. And when you came to the worship center and you had these sacrifices on the altar in the main courtyard there of the temple or the tabernacle before that, you had this great enriching, you know, pleasing smell. And the idea of our deeds were supposed to be Uh, in our own thinking, either going to smell good to God or not smell good. And we know that just so kind of intuitively we respond to, to odors and the idea of God saying to us, even what we do with our money can become something that brings pleasure to God. Now, I don't want to be too trite with this word, but let's jot it down in the left-hand column after you've jotted down those references in that left-hand box. Let's just talk about this, happiness. My behavior, my thoughts, my attitudes, my sacrifice, the way I spend my money, what I do with my thought life, those things can bring happiness to God. They can please Him. Now, I know with a lot of convoluted teaching of late that I assure you will be passe soon in the Orthodox Church, some people don't think that's even possible for us. Uh, But it is. You're either going to please him or not please him. The issues of adoption are issues of justification. The issues of your pleasing God or not pleasing God are issues of your sanctification. And yes, I'm a child of God adopted into his family. I certainly believe on the grace of Christ they will not be cast out of his family. But my behavior can either please him or not please him. Just like any father-child relationship. Now, of course, this wouldn't be a hard one to contrast. And the word I think that's most telling and should be able to be something we can identify with is when the scripture says this about the third person of the Godhead. That the behavior, even in the context, which is great, we don't have time to look at, is the behaviors of our lives. The things that we do can grieve the Holy Spirit. And he says, don't do that. Don't grieve the Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And there again is the connection, or I should say the contrast between justification and sanctification. I'm sealed, and that means that I have this, like a, like a, a royal, uh, you know, imprimatur on my life because of the Spirit. That's that image of the Spirit being the guarantee of my redemption. I'm a child of God. That's justification. But if I think because of that, God only looks at some cutout of Jesus, and every time he looks at me, he smiles because all he sees is Christ, because, of course, I'm sealed by the Spirit. See, that's just not biblical teaching. That's found in a lot of churches these days. A lot of churches that would say they agree with our doctrine at this church, but they're teaching a false perception of sanctification. 
Because in reality, I have the ability in my life to either grieve the spirit, the the triune God, you might as well add that, or bring him pleasure or happiness. So let's put this in these terms, grief. Now, if you just think about that in terms of what God has done to forgive you, to make you someone who can be sealed until the day of redemption and bring you into the kingdom as a forgiven one, that he was willing to see his own son, not only see him passively, but actively crush him as a sacrifice. And he's done that for you. And to know that what you do tonight and tomorrow can either bring him joy and pleasure and happiness in his own heart or can bring him grief. That's just, I mean, that's enough for us to say we should be fighting sin probably a little bit harder than we do. This goes all the way back, this word, by the way, in the Hebrew text to Genesis 6, 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. Now, you know, that's obviously a description of the the extent of, the quantity of sin on the planet, but certainly the connection between God, his heart, and sinful man, and how he feels certainly is spelled out clearly in this last phrase, and it grieved him to his heart, to the core of who he is. It brought God pain, and that's something that you have to look at in terms of a God who's not going to damn you to hell, but one who's going to bring you into the entrance of the kingdom. I certainly don't want to bring God grief. Christianity. I'm a part of this thing called Christianity, the second line here. And I am, unless I'm undercover, underground, never associate with Christian kind of Christian, which there shouldn't be many of those. Uh, They're in sin and they'll be disciplined by God. But most of us here obviously identify as Christians. Most people around you, I hope, know you're Christians. Most people in your, your neighbors on either side, they know that you claim Christ. I want to think about what holiness and sin does in those two respects. Look at Titus chapter 2 here on the screen, verses 7 and 8. Be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity. What you say, let it match your life. Dignity, sound speech that cannot be condemned. They'd look at you and say, well, that's solid. That's that's consistent. So that an opponent, those that don't like what we teach and what we stand for, may be put to shame. One of the ways they put to shame is they look at our lives. We're a model of good works. We're consistent in what we say and what we do, having nothing evil to say about us. What can they say? Because the life that we're leading is a life that matches what we are representing. And that is a holy God. Let's call it this, that we help to create an an unimpeachable reputation for the body of Christ when you and I live righteously. I don't want to look at the other side of this quite yet. I just want to think about what the good it would do for us as Christians to live in keeping with our calling. Yeah, I guess I'll add this next verse now. 1 Peter 2, verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable in your work, what you do. I often hear people say, I can't help but get to the negative side. But him, people say, well, if he got a fish on his truck, you know, I'm not going to hire him because I know these Christians aren't good, good workers. I, I've, if I've heard that once, I've heard it 30, 40 times in my ministry. And I think to myself, even that, I mean, the biblical work ethic is an issue for us of righteousness, holiness, or sin. So we're, we should be choosing a holy life, living a holy life, being a model of good works. And when my life is honorable, people wouldn't be saying that kind of thing. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. They may assume we're going to be evildoers, but they see our good deeds. And one day they'll be vindication. They'll have to glorify God on the day of visitation, saying at least, you know, those Christians, they were consistent. They were godly. They did do these righteous things. Of course, no one's expecting perfection in our lives. But even how we respond to sin, as we'll get to later, certainly speaks to a righteous lifestyle. So 
This helps Christianity in terms of its reputation. Sin, though, on the other hand, and there's so many passages we could look at. I just picked one. I'm thinking real quickly of Romans chapter 2. You love the law, but you break it, and you let the, the, the Gentiles mock you for that. But here's another one, 2 Peter 2.2. 2, and many will follow their sensuality, speaking particularly of those on a stage, teachers, and, and they just do what they feel like, and there's a lot of that going on. Just go on YouTube or whatever, and you'll see the people making exposés of all these people that stand up on a stage preaching about God, and they expose their lives that's full of uh, sin. All kinds of things, drugs and prostitution and all those kinds of, of issues. I mean, we hear a, a new one every year or two. High-profile people. It's because of them, these people that stand for Christ, say they're for Christ, that the way of truth is blasphemed. I mean, you don't even want to do it. It's so depressing, but you could type in, you know, Christians are hypocrites in Google and just see how many websites just given to the idea uh, that Christians are, are two-faced and they don't do what they say they stand for. Uh, Christianity is going to be defamed. That's the word I picked for this. Blasphemed. They're going to malign us. They're going to mock us. They're going to call us hypocrites, inconsistent. We want to be able, even though they may want to call us evildoers, when you say, what, in what way are these people denying the things that they stand for, we want it to be unimpeachable. That in reality, they'll see our good works and know they don't really have a case. The general effects of sin, obviously for us in our lives, in your life and mine, uh, we need to see when we are conducting ourselves in holiness. God describes us this way. Christ does in Matthew five thirteen and 14. He says, you're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Salt has this effect of, of being salty, and he doesn't describe it here, although salt, I think, in a Jew's mind in the first century, knowing that every sacrifice had to be presented with salt. There was so much ethical symbolism in the idea of salt. I don't think that this was lost on them. If the preservation, the effect, the impact, the taste, the savor, the flavor, if you will, of the people of God is not salty, if it doesn't have that effect, well, then what good is it? And you know the ellipsis there represents that phrase you all know. It's, no, it's good for nothing but to be trampled underfoot by men. And then he turns the analogy to the light of the world. Light of the world is that we're shining before people. They see us. We do this and we affect people. We bring uh, light in terms of this analogy, our behavior uh, before a watching world. And it's not only that we deal with our reputation, but there's something else that goes on in this. Think of Second Thessalonians 2, 6. When it speaks of what I think, and I suppose this is a controversial passage for some, but the restrainer in this passage that's going to be taken away, that's spoken of twice here in Second Thess chapter 2, I believe is the church. It's the work of God and the righteousness of God being manifested in society through the church. And when it is removed, the man of lawlessness is revealed. The great tribulation takes place. And as they say, all this terrible time of Jacob's trouble ensues, which is the worst Jesus said that's ever been on the planet. The restraining impact of our presence, our good works. Uh, let's call it goodness. The goodness in society is maintained by... The people of God living righteous lives. We have a preserving effect. If you took every real regenerate Christian out of America right now, and you talk about any topic that's being battled, any ethical, moral topic that's being battled in, in, in the news or in talk radio or in Congress or wherever it might be, in the legislatures of the various states, you're going to find that the, we're going to unleash this torrent of immorality in any society. And that, you know, is hard to substantiate because we won't be able to test that proposition in a macrocosm at least until the, the rapture of the church. 
I, I thought of on a practical level how that's spelled out in so many passages of 1 Corinthians 7, certainly here in, in 1 Peter chapter 3 when it speaks to wives and you've got a disobedient husband. You want to bring it from the macrocosm of salt and light in society, just take it to the microcosm of the home. When a woman married to a husband lives this good life, this conduct, this, this uh, behavior, being adorned by good works, all the things, if you know the passage, in the first seven verses of that chapter, it says that has the effect of, of winning the person you're living with if they're disobedient to the word. It not only preserves them from going further, as, as the apostles say, headlong into sin, but it even has the effect of turning people around. And it, you know, that's the logic, that your disobedient husband can be won without a word by the conduct of the wife. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with the word being added to that. But the point of this is the power of the behavior of a godly person, in this case, a godly wife, has an amazing impact on others in this case when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So when I do righteous things, I have a preserving effect, a restraining effect. I have an effect of even moving and, and, and prompting people in the direction of doing good. And when that's not happening, you can take your mind back to Genesis 6, which we didn't read the whole context, but every thought and intention of the people in that generation was only continually evil, and it grieved God. He regretted that he made man. It grieved him to his heart. So the more we choose righteousness in the height of our temptation, the more goodness we affect on our society and even in our homes. Galatians chapter 6 if you want to look at the other side of this, the one that sows to his, to his own flesh. You just do whatever you want. As it was described earlier, the sensuality, whatever the senses of your life tell you to do, the impulses of you, you just do it, which is really a simple definition of sin. Well, then you'll reap from that, from that paradigm, from that, that arena. If you just want to live in the arena of doing whatever you feel like doing, you'll reap from that corruption. I just think that's a great word. I can't summarize it better than that. That's a big word, a sweeping word. And I think because he's being general, Paul, here to the Galatian churches, it's a good word for us to summarize the effect. And we'll look a little bit more at that a little bit later. But the idea of the, the negative effects, it tears down, it, it fuels sin. It, as James says, it brings, it brings forth death, which is philosophical, I suppose. More on that later. Personal disposition. What does the choice that you make tonight, tomorrow, on the weekend about sin or, or, or holiness, what will that do for you as a person in your own disposition? James chapter 3, speaking generally here, talks about the wisdom that's from above, describes all these things that it is, including it's full of mercy and good fruits, good works, it's impartial and sincere. And then he says this in verse 18, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. That idea of peace you'll find throughout the Bible when it comes to those who are doing good deeds. It's one of the things that happens in the lives of those that are choosing righteous things, like in Psalm 1, for instance. But here in Hebrews 12, talking about discipline and correction, when we get correct and we choose the righteous path because of that correction, it will yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who've been trained by that discipline and correction. That's just a great word. And if I want to think about what I want in my own disposition, what I want in the quality of my own heart and my mind and how I functioning in the software of who I am, I'd like it to be at peace. I'd like that contentment that we preached on this past weekend. And that is here. It hangs in the balance in the fight that we have with temptation and sin. 
On the other hand, and I could have gone a lot of places in this, actually I erased several things in this box, but I, I just landed on this. There's, there's several things we could look at in terms of the personal disposition and the effect of sin on our disposition, but certainly there's a period between sin and repentance. It may be five minutes, it could be five days, but according to Psalm 32.3, I know God loves his children, he disciplines his children, and there's something going on in our very hearts and minds that's described this way. When I kept silent about my sin, from the sin to the repentance... My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Uh, For night and day, day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up. Very familiar passage we quoted often. But the idea of God's hand of opposition against our very heart, the disposition of our lives. So, I mean, that, I suppose, is a broad enough term for us to put there in the right-hand column. The guilt of sin. That's something I'd like to live without. I'd like to mitigate that. I'd like to make that as, as, as rare an experience as possible. And of course, it's not rare enough for any of us in the room, but I rather choose righteousness and have peace in my disposition as opposed to all the pain that's associated with guilt. Personal welfare, just to kind of broaden this now. Galatians chapter 6, 9, Galatians 6, 9 says, let's not grow weary in doing good. We do good. We choose righteous things. We don't choose to compromise and sin for in due season may not be right now, but in due season, we will reap. If we do not give up the idea of reaping here, if we want to be more specific, can't be too specific in this because every righteous decision bears a different kind of reaping, I suppose. But when Jesus talks about it, he just takes it all the way down to the place of of sacrificing a cup of cold water for someone. If anyone gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So there's some good words out of the analogy of reaping. Right, the idea here, at least, a, a non-analogy, a, I mean, a word that just speaks of something. God pays those people back. There's always something that comes in the future for people that choose right over wrong, holiness over sin. God will always reward people making godly choices, if not now, certainly in the age to come. Hebrews 6 says God is in no way an unjust God. He pins his justice on the fact that he doesn't overlook the good decisions that we make as Christians. In terms of sin, well, it's going to bring guilt, of course. That's one aspect to it, but it's also going to bring discipline. All discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Later, it yields peaceful fruit, the peaceful fruit of righteousness by those who have been trained by it. But if you sin, he's going to bring you to repentance. Part of that discipline may be the internal disposition of guilt, but it goes far beyond that. I mean, if you want some examples of this, you might want to jot down 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 30 through 32, that gives examples like this. It says, because of the unrepentant sin in your church, there are people, because of the sins that they're committing, that are weak, sick, and some have even died. So now he's tying to people in churches that have chosen to do sinful things, to people that are not feeling all that well, to people that are actually sick and ill at home, and people that have actually passed away in the church. And I love the way that passage ends. I don't love it, but I I like the clarity of it. It says, if we had judged ourselves truly, if we'd done it thoughtfully and sincerely, then we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we won't be condemned with the rest of the world. And that's the point. If you say, well, I sin and I don't have any of that bad, well, then you're not a Christian, according to Hebrews chapter 12. Because every child he receives, he disciplines, which means when you sin, you will have more in terms of your personal welfare that can be characterized by pain than the non-Christian. 
my non-Christian neighbor can do something tonight, and I can do the very same thing tonight, if we're talking about sinful things, he can do a sinful thing, I can do the same sinful thing, and he will have a better experience in the wake of that, even though there's reaping and corruption involved, than I will, because I have the factor, the equation, included in the equation, a God who says, I'm always going to discipline my kids until they come to repentance, so they can learn to, to make righteous decisions. Now, look through the chart. That's the, the whole chart. I can make decisions in the throes of temptation, that impulse to want to sin, that's either going to please God or grieve God. It's going to help the church have an impeachable reputation or a, a reputation that's going to be blasphemed. I, I'm going to have in my own life the effect on others that's going to be good. We call that goodness. Or it's going to lead to corruption to those around me. In my heart, I'm either going to have peace or guilt. And in my experience of everyday life, the welfare of my life, I'm either going to have God's reward or I'm going to have the pain of discipline, even though I don't know the season of that reward. Keep doing good in due time we reap. may not even be in this life that some of the reward comes. But God has promised that the welfare of my future, Mike Fabares' personal future, is going to be improved by the decisions that I make. Now, again, some people aren't teaching this anymore in churches, but I, mean, I hope I've given you enough scripture here to make it clear this is what the Bible teaches. Couldn't be clear. Our grandparents had no problem preaching this kind of thing. So let's all choose to do the right things from now on. Let's pray. No, this is really hard. Let's ask this question next. Why is it so, so stinking hard? Why is it hard? Why do we sin? I've been a Christian now a long time and I'm still sinning. I want to stop doing this. What makes this such a chronic battle? Now, we talk a lot about sanctification and the process of it, that we do see a trajectory, I hope, a direction toward being conformed to the image of Christ. We look at those great lines from Paul as he told the Corinthians, you're going to move from one level of glory to the next level of glory. Well, that's great. I want to be more conformed to the image of his son, as Romans 8 says, but I'm, I'm not sinless. I'm still having a battle, and it still is difficult. The sins may be different now than they were 10 years ago, but there's, it's still a, a hard-fought battle. So what's with all that? Now, this is nothing new. You should know these things. But we have a relentless tempter, a relentless, tireless, persistent tempter. And, of course, when I say that, much like the Bible says it, only in a few cases does he show up and do it himself. Job, I suppose, is one. Jesus, of course, in Matthew 4. He may do that personally, but he's got a whole army of beings that are in the, in, in the business of doing the bidding of the tempter. So I, I know that in this room right now, I can assure you there is enough demonic spirits in, in the cosmos to be present in this room, and their concern is, is, is to tempt you. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of them to, 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 to go around South County to, to have, I don't know how many, present and, and, and ready to do whatever they can to get you to sin. Now, we can speak specifically of Satan, and often, like in passages in 2 Corinthians 11, it's spoken of as though it's Satan personally. But remember, we're just talking about the, the emissaries of Satan, unless you're some super, super high-profile person that Satan wants to mess with. Nevertheless, Paul puts it in these terms when he speaks to the Corinthians, and he says, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, if I had a sincere, a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, I was doing that all the time, that I'd be living in the left-hand column, pleasing God, helping the reputation of, of the church of Christ. I would be having all these, these good effects on other people. I would have this peaceful disposition all the time. I would, I would have nothing but good in, in terms of God's blessing in the future of my life, perhaps not in this world, 
consistently, but certainly God's plan for me is nothing but, but, but riches in heaven. And I'm thinking to myself, that's not the case for anybody. So this is a statement of proportion, that there's a, a concern that Paul has that Satan's really winning the battle in these people's lives. And he says this is Satan's territory because he's always out there doing this cunning. He is that surreptitious, crafty, deceitful being, and his emissaries are just the same. And it's something he's always at. Be sober and mindful and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. First Peter 5, 8, and I'm sure he does that personally. So he does get his hands, I'm sure, so to speak. He has no hands. But his attention is focused on several people on planet Earth in any given generation. But certainly his emissaries are doing the thing, same thing. All his lion cubs, if you will, are out there seeking, even in this room, a person who's at their vulnerability to see if, if he can take them down. And often, as we learn in passages like Luke twenty two thirty one, he works heavily on those who are advancing, who are making an, uh, you know, an, a, a greater effect on other people. Uh, and if you've had a great season of growth, or you find yourself in a position where you are having, I don't know, effective evangelism with someone or taking someone through partners and it's going well or you're teaching some class and you're getting asked to do things to, to advance the truth of Christ in this world or in our church, just know that's when you get the attention of the enemy. And in Luke twenty two thirty one, it's a classic example when Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you. Now, if you've heard this passage preached before, you, need, you know that second person pronoun in this particular passage is plural. So he says, Simon, Simon, and he speaks to Simon because he's so intent on this statement. But he says to Simon, he wants to sift all of you guys. Speaking there of the 12, he's demanded to sift you all. They might sift you like wheat. He's demanded to have you. So that should be something that should definitely give us a sense of this isn't going to be easy as long as I have an adversary. It's like any sporting, you know, football. Just take the ball and run it into the end zone. Well, that'd be great as long as there weren't people that were huge trying to keep me out of the end zone. And I'm saying let's just choose to do righteous things because it's so important to do this and the effects of this are so important. Well, we've got a gigantic team, defensive line, if you will, that wants to make sure that you don't get very good at this. Why is fighting temptation so difficult? Well, not only that, we live in a rebellious world and these overlap. They overlap because 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says in their case, speaking of our evangelistic efforts, although we can speak of this in terms of any non-Christian, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. And the reason theos here, the word God, is translated with a small g is because clearly we're talking in the context about Satan. Satan here is called the God, the Lord, the boss, the chief, the CEO of the universe. You think about, I was reading, engaging with the history of an organization where we had bad leadership and turned to good leadership. And I looked at the difference between the organization when the CEO was here and then the CEO was there. And and I thought, well, you know, so much just depends on the leadership at the top. And, and, the, and the trickle down, that you just can't get away from that. And the Bible says the world that you live in, the ultimate house that you live in here on the, on the planet is run by someone who is all about trying to get people to sin. We live in a world run by the enemy of holiness. That might be a good way to think of it. You live in a world that's run by the enemy of holiness. He doesn't want you to be holy. In this context, of course, it's about evangelism, but we already know he's out to tempt people. 
So we got to watch out for how we live in this world because everything's arranged, if you will. The furniture is arranged. The entertainment is arranged. Everything is arranged in the world by the CEO of the world. It's all against holiness. And we got to be sure we don't get too attached to this place and how it operates. Don't love the world or the things in the world. If anybody loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, again, if you look at John 3.16 and you compare it to this passage, you think, well, Christ loves the world. We're supposed to love non-Christians. Paul does in Romans chapter 9 and 10. What's with this? Well, obviously, we're not talking about loving people like Matthew 9 says in the harvest to see them one to Christ. That's real love. We're talking about that kind of affection that people have for the system of the world that really is designed at every level. It's strategic. There is a, you know, this is a conspiracy. I'm not a conspiratorial person at all. But when it comes to when I see the world and what's going on, clearly it's a conspiracy. Not because a a group of people are meeting in the basement somewhere, figuring this out in some Illuminati group. And you may be into that. I'm sorry, I'm not. But when it comes to the conspiracy, I totally believe it. It, it's, It's done by the enemy. I mean, things work together in this world in such a way that you know there is a driving intelligent force behind it, and it's all moving in the direction that the CEO wants it to go. Now, again, that may sound contradictory to the sovereignty of God, but much like what happened in the garden in Genesis 3, we have to look at the overarching decretive will of God, if you will, and the declared will of God. The declared will of God is don't eat from the tree. But the decretive will of God is God's going to work in a pattern in the world to use that sin to bring glory to himself through grace and redemption. But the point is, when I speak on this level, in this world, everything is moving in the direction in terms of entertainment, in terms of how things go, in terms of what people like to watch, the, the, the movies, the, everything that will do well and everything that is applauded. It's moving in a direction that is run, the Bible says, by the God of this world. And so we've got to be careful to stay at arm's length and not be too cozy at loving the world. As a matter of fact, the way it's put in James is you don't even have to love it and use the word agape or phileo. Just use this word, friendship with the world. Instantly, just immediately disqualifies you from being tight with God. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God. Now you've got to define world. And what is that? Well, it's the system and the way things go down here that are always pointing people to, to all kinds of sin. John 1 would be a good example of that, which I think I, I put up here at some point. So we got to do this. I mean, you want to talk about arm's distance. I love the way Paul puts it at the end of Galatians 6. Because of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, speaking of that, by that, because of that, because all of that was paid for on the cross was an example, right? It was just representative of all the sin in the world. It had to be paid for. It had to be atoned for. And in that mindset, he says, the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And that's the dramatic way of talking, right? It's dead to me. And it is. I I no longer have an interest in caring what the world thinks about my ministry or my writings or my whatever. My teaching doesn't matter. Because in this regard, I know that the world is rebellious. All I care about is God and the people of God. And they should be living a countercultural kind of life. We also have reckless body. It's the other thing you have. Notice the R's going here on the ABC. A relentless tempter, a rebellious world, and you have a reckless body. A body that doesn't care to stop and evaluate whether or not this is a good thing, a right thing, or a constructive thing. You are wired in a way that is reckless. An impulse wants to be responded to. Now, we've talked about this, but when we think about who we are as software, and we're encased in hardware, remember last time I talked about that there's such a such a such an intimate connection 
that we are a whole as body and spirit, as hardware and software, as material and immaterial, that, that I use the word enmeshed. And one of the ways I think it's very important to understand sanctification is that we have been born again and given a new heart. That's the descriptive analogy. But you've been given a new spirit. You are a transformed person, a new creation in Christ. And then you say, well, if I'm just in a container that's just a container, well, then why should that be an issue? Why should the body be an issue? Because as I've tried to illustrate before, even on my computer, which just had died recently, it wasn't dying, but it was sputtering and on its deathbed. And thankfully, our tech director, Gus, got me a new computer, and that was great. Set it up, finally got to use it today. And I'm so glad for the new computer. It works so much better. And part of the problem is the improving software continually, year after year, has problems interfacing with the old hardware. Why? Because the hardware is not neutral. The hardware has software soldered to the motherboard. Every component has some software in it. So that's the way our body operates. Who I really am is software. But I'm the software that's been designed by God, created in the image of God. But I exist and have to function in this world in the hardware of my body, which isn't just cells and, you know, germs and viruses and proteins and all that. It's, not, it's more than that. There's something about the way human beings are that has a software in it. It has a set of impulses and desires that aren't just natural. They have to do with who I am as a spirit being. And therefore, I'm going to have trouble. And in that, har- in that hardware, you know, we can say it has a life of its own that really is life, and it's not just an inanimate thing. It's something more than biology. It's something spiritual in itself, though we want to make the hard contrast between spirit and body, as we see in the scriptures. And that is, I'm already redeemed in my spirit, but according to Romans chapter 8, verse 23, we groan because of the spirit in our lives, capital S, who's made my spirit new, and I groan inwardly, and I wait eagerly for, I should at least, the adoption as sons. I'm going to be adopted. I thought I was already adopted. Well, there's one component that makes my adoption complete, the redemption of our bodies. When I get the new hardware with the new software, things are perfect. Things work well, very harmonious. But when the old software with new hardware, I'm going to have conflict. That's the problem. And we need to realize that my body is never going to cooperate with the new software because it has a mind of its own in many ways. So I've got to struggle. I've got to work. I've got to abstain from some of the, the, the line and the code that's built into the, the wafers on my, my, my motherboard. I've got to be careful. I've got to abstain from those things. He calls us sojourners and exiles in this world. We don't fit here in the world. And we should be abstaining from the passions of the flesh that are really in sync with the world. They want to do what the world does. And that's going to create a war. There's a war between my soul and there's a war between my soul and my body. It wages war against my soul. The coding of my hardware constantly fighting the software of my soul. How high-tech is this illustration? Wow, it's dizzying. Amazing. Thank you. I thought it was that we'd reached heights there, had we not? Romans chapter 8, verse 13. So if I just respond to the impulses of my hardware, if I live according to the flesh, death. Just like James says, every sin gives much full-grown leads to death. Now, that's a big word. speaks more than just dying biologically. has to speak of all the corruption and effects of sin. But if I live by the Spirit, the Spirit, capital S, of God has an agenda. He's created my heart to work in sync with the Spirit. As Ezekiel said, he's given me a new heart that is going to be led to obey God's commandments. That heart, if I just respond to that, then I'm going to have to declare war on my 
impulses of my body. I have to put to death the deeds of the body. Then I'll live. Then I get all the fruits of that, the reward of that, the good of that, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Live according to the flesh, you die. You live according to the spirit. And you got to put to death the deeds of the body to cross metaphors. Colossians 3, strong language again, put it to death. This is the old Latin word. We get the English word mortify from. Remember the old language of mortifying the body. Got to put to death whatever is earthly in you. Again, here's the crossover. Again, all these overlap. Satan is the tempter. He will personally send demons to tempt you. He is the CEO of the world. There's the overlap with the world. And that world system is going to want you to sin and compromise. Well, even in the world, I got a body. And the coding in my hardware wants to keep doing whatever the world does. He calls it here earthly stuff in me. And stuff like sexual immorality. Have you noticed the world's real big on that? I don't know if you noticed that. Impurity, passion, whatever I feel, do it. Evil desire, covetousness. All of that's idolatry. And he goes on to list some more. So I've got to fight it. I've got to put it to death. I've got a body that's going to fight against my desires to do right. So I want to be holy. I want to live in the left-hand column. I want to please God. I want to make him happy. I want to bolster the reputation of the church. I, I want to have an impact on the world for good like salt and light. I'd like to have that peace in my heart. I'd like to have that good in my future. Well, then I'm going to have to decline a lot of the desires of my life every day. Self-denial. If you walk by the Spirit... You're not going to gratify the desires of the flesh. That seems like a positive statement, but the negative way to put it is I got to deny myself. What? The desires of my, of my own body, things I can't do that I want to do, things I'll desire to do. I have to have needs and desires, needs, small n, needs and desires in my life. They're unmet. They're unfulfilled. And that's what that statement says. If you think about it, I know it's been made into so many, you know, day spring cards. We don't catch the hurt in this walk by the spirit. Then you don't get to fulfill yourself your desires not all of them some of them not all of them all right that's why it's hard satan the world and the flesh the world flesh and the devil as they used to put it i wouldn't put them in that order put them in the order i put them in but we want to spend the rest of our time talking about how to fight it and that's really kind of inclusive of the fourth point but let's talk about how to fight temptation first corinthians chapter 13 you can turn there if you want most of you have it memorized i suppose here's the first line no temptations overtaking you that is not common to man what is your temptation open mic come on on the stage and say what it all would be afraid i wouldn't want to do that it's really bad it's really weird it's not sinful it's terrible listen it's common it's it's not unusual now just because it's not unusual shouldn't mean that we shouldn't grieve it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be ashamed of it it doesn't mean that we shouldn't really be embarrassed to talk about it we we should be embarrassed we should be ashamed and we shouldn't think it's okay just because it's a common thing common desire common battle but it should help me not to feel isolated and as long as i'm saying feel isolated let's just be consistent i don't want to be isolated either see if we can tackle both of those with this point i don't want to isolate myself in my own thinking walking around telling myself well poor me i got everyone else has got it different than me and that's the way we think we let ourselves get away with all kinds of thoughts that puts us in a category of lamenting our particular battle and my unmet desires and my unmet needs and all the things I wish I could have. And I'm sure everybody else has fulfillment in these areas and I don't. Don't feel isolated. There's not a single temptation that you have that's not common to man. And that means that everybody who fights those temptations and does what is good and righteous, they've had to overcome the things that you're right now fighting. 
They've had to work through the feelings and the pangs and the problems that you feel and that you battle with. They've all, they've had to do that. Now, not every person has the same menu of, of, of temptations and sins, but I mean, I can find easily in a room this size, I could certainly find dozens of people that share the same variety of sins and temptations you deal with all the time. Now I could quote Christ and I was going to go there tempted in everywhere as we are yet without sin. But you think, well, I don't know. Hard to identify with that. I get that, though you shouldn't dismiss it because someone doesn't really feel the full weight of temptation until he's resisted that sin completely. And Christ was the only one who resisted sin completely, if you follow that logic. But let's think of someone like Elijah. Really, if you study Elijah, and he would be a great character study to do sometime in the pulpit, I would like to do every reference to Elijah because everything about Elijah doesn't stay in the context of the monarchy of Israel. He becomes the promise in Malachi of the coming forerunner of, of the day of the Lord. He becomes the overshadowing identification of John the Baptist with something still future with the coming of Elijah. An amazing person in the scripture. But look at how he's described in James 5.17. He was a man with a nature like ours. And if you read the story of Elijah, much like everything in the Bible about everyone... In the Bible, you see the weaknesses of those people. David, great king of Israel, we see his sin with Bathsheba. Elijah, the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, saved John the Baptist. And yet, he's sitting by a, a broom tree wanting to die, asking God to take his life. So we know his weaknesses, but when we look at his life and the amazing things that he did, and the way he stood up for righteousness and, and, and boldly preached when everyone was against him and did amazing things and God used him greatly, we're reminded he's a man with a nature like ours. But he fought through the temptations. And the reason your prayer life is not the way Elijah's prayer life was isn't because of anything in his nature inherently. I mean, he's trying to encourage us to pray in James 5. And he says, look at how he prayed. Prayed fervently. Might not rain. And it didn't rain. But remember, even the power of Elijah to do these things as a servant of God isn't because he's different than you. He had to deal with the same kinds of things that you do. So don't feel isolated. We could go on in that. But for the sake of time, let's move forward to not being isolated then. If that's the case, then we ought to be assuming that the people that we deal with in the church, in discipleship, in our small group, in our home fellowship, seriously have the same kinds of temptations that you do. Not everybody in the circle has the same exact ones, but we've got to assume we're all in this together. Therefore, let's just be more open about the exhortation. I don't have to hang out everybody's dirty laundry. And I know some churches are into that. And I don't think that's the point. But I do think because you know the battles that you have, there needs to be more of a clear and, and kind of empathetic exhortation that we say, I love this passage, as long as it's today, as long as we have opportunity, that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. And since you really are an expert on temptation, and you are, you can help someone who's struggling with temptation. That's great. I mean, that helps us, I think, as a church, make sure that we are not isolating ourselves in our own mind and not isolating ourselves in our conversation. And even when we fail, to not be isolated in the admission of that. Here's a passage that doesn't get a lot of play or application, and it should. Therefore, confess your sins to God. Is that what it says? No. Confess your sins to one another. Why? Because even in the failure of your life, in some area of temptation, there's the need to have someone, to put it poetically in Ecclesiastes' words, to pick you back up. And in that help that we derive, as 2 Corinthians 1 says, in praying for one another, we have this, this restorative and, and healing kind of, of, of motif here. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. 
Why? Because the prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. And that comes in the context, you can see James 16, right before James 5.17, which was about Elijah and his praying. And he was a man with a nature like ours. And there are people here that have dealt with the sin that you're dealing with. And when someone falls and you confess it, their prayer can have a great power in restoring your life. That's just a great underutilized principle. I, I add Galatians 6.1 because some of you, I get this request periodically. Why don't we have recovery groups? And, you know, the, the good churches have those and we don't have those. And we're not a good church. Well, here's why I don't have those. You struggle with pornography, you struggle with alcohol, you struggle with drugs. Whatever your struggle is, just to name some of the popular support groups that we might have, my theory is that I find nothing in Scripture that would lead me as a pastor to get groups of people together that have the same weakness to support one another. Galatians 6.1 says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are under the weight of the same transgression and as big a failure as they are, restore him. No, you who are spiritual restore him. You want the strength of someone to get involved with someone who's had some failure in their temptation and their, in their lives to come in who can help them. I don't want to get two people together that have the same record of failure in that particular area. And I certainly don't want a room full of them. Doesn't help. Or to put it in terms of Romans chapter 15, verse one, we who are strong have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak. If there's failings in your life in a particular area, let me assign you someone that has gotten through that, has some strength, or maybe has not gotten around that, or has not dug himself into the same pit that you have. Let's have the strong bear the failings of the weak. Matter of fact, we have an obligation in that regard. You've done well in your life. That's why often in the church we separate, you know, in, at least in the text of Scripture, the older and the younger. There ought to be some victory in your life as, a, as an aging, growing Christian that you can help younger Christians that are falling into the rut of this or that. You will have an obligation to bear the failings of the weak. So if the question comes to you instead of me, you might remember the two passages, Galatians 6.1 and Romans 15.1, why we don't have big rooms full of people with the same nagging besetting sin. So don't feel isolated. Don't be isolated. Doesn't mean we need a support group for that. You follow me on that? What's the next line in first Corinthians 10, 13? Because God is faithful. God is faithful. Now, I think the reason this is here, though some people debate this, is a general statement about the totality of what's being said in the whole passage, which reminds me, letter B, that God is a God who will, will help He's a faithful God. He cares about righteousness. The whole point of the first half of Romans chapter 10 is making sure that we avoid the sins of other people. In other words, the example of the Old Testament people that sat down to eat and drink and got up to play, we don't want to be like that. The people that rebelled against the leaders and and were insubordinate, don't be like that. God wiped them out. So all this concern about God, though we could look at the fact that he is a God who's faithful to judge, the whole concern of the passage is about doing righteous things and responding right to temptation. And I think here I can be, certainly it's true in the rest of scripture at least, if I'm even wrong on this particular interpretation, God is a God that wants to help me through this. And I need to be confident in that. And certainly when I read this passage and I see God is faithful and I look at the larger context, I certainly think that fits what is being said. To put it in terms of Hebrews 4, 14 and 15, we're supposed to hold fast to our confession. And if I'm going to do that, and you remember I've got a great high priest who's able to sympathize with my weakness. He has in every respect been tempted as we are yet without sin. So I've got a Christ who is my high priest, the anointed one, the Christ, who is there as a mediator for me, who says, I'm ready to help you. And one thing I know is that 
Christ is one who wants me to do right, not from some distant, unaffected person, but as someone who says, I know what it's like to have earthly impulses and desires, and I want to get you through that. God is a God who's a God who wants to help us, which is the whole point of 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Then he says, and I do think it's right that the ESV puts a period after God is faithful. Now we start one aspect of that faithfulness, another aspect of that faithfulness, not just his general concern for righteousness, but he doesn't want you to be tempted beyond what you're able. And he's faithful in the fact that he won't allow that to happen. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. And that may sound like a ridiculous statement because you fall into sin and thought I had no choice. Well, don't remember the world's dead to us and it's, I'm dead to it. It's dead to me. Uh, there's no me trying to get on the bandwagon of, as what I said last time, just briefly, of that victim mentality. Uh, there's nothing true about that statement. I don't have to do X, Y, or Z. I mean, this is the dignity of a human being made in the image of God. And I know that temptation is not an overwhelming temptation that I cannot not give in to. So I need to be confident that the temptation of my life is governed. It's governed by God. It's never beyond the place where I can truly say I am a victim of this. I can't do anything but sin in this situation. The Bible says God is a governor of that. He's never going to let that happen. Job chapter 1, at least in terms of God's governance of demonic spirits, you can definitely quote this passage. Job 1.12, the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he, that's Job, has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord, and you know what he did. He touched everything but Job. Well, why didn't he say, well, I'm the liar, the deceiver. I'm the bad guy, the wicked one. I'm just going to do it even though he said not to. Well, because that's not how it works. Satan is only enabled to do what God allows him to do. He's got Satan on a leash. And we looked at that when we studied this passage of the demoniac, the garrison demoniac. And the parallel passage puts it so well. I quoted it here in Matthew 8 of the, of the demoniac. The demons ask him, Legion asked, have you come to torment us before the time? So they know this. We're going to be tormented. We're not going to get out of it. Most rebels that I know of think they're going to avoid consequence. They know they're not because they know the leash is on them. Now, there was a herd of many pigs feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him. Here's the strong word. Would you please, if you cast this out, let us go into the herd of pigs? I'm thinking, why don't you just leave and do it yourself? Well, because you're under the authority, the sovereign control, the the governance of, of God. Our enemy, then, has the leash that is held by God. We gave you that picture in that sermon, if you were there for that, where he's the giant muscle man he's with a poodle. This isn't the lady in your neighborhood that walks the Great Dane down the street and she weighs, you know, 100 pounds. This is God who can pull in and rein in any demonic temptation in your life. And since he's running the world, and even our bodies are the impulses that reflect the world system, I, I know this, God has the ability to manage my temptation. And I know that while it's there and he's going to let it be there, It's never going to be beyond what I'm able to bear. That's a huge point that I don't think most people believe in the depths of their heart when they're facing temptation tomorrow. They don't think that it's governed. They think it's some out of control, horrible, ungoverned, unmitigated temptation that they just have to give into because they're a victim. The Bible says, no, that's not true. God is faithful, won't allow us to be tempted beyond our ability. But with that temptation, we'll also provide a way of escape. So the power of that temptation is going to be limited. And then there's always going to be an out. So you got to look for it. I got to look for the way out. And let me give you three things here that may not seem like where you would expect me to go after saying in the temptation, there's a way out. Well, a lot of times the way out is something that takes place before we get there. Do you follow me? 
For instance, Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. There's a principle we could unpack all over the scripture. I mean, I make decisions about what I do today that will affect my temptation tomorrow. You know, I, I talk about in the partner's manual, the garbage in, garbage out principle. I talk about things like the, the, the he who walks with wise men will be wise. The companion of fools suffers harm. First Corinthians 15, right? Bad company corrupts good morals. There are so many decisions we make that may seem benign at the time, but they'll affect what happens in my temptation tomorrow. So my way out starts with precautions. I have to take precautions today about things that I'm going to expose my mind to, my eyes to, my ears to, that will keep me from sin tomorrow. Because when I'm in the temptation, there is a way out, and the way out may have been something that I did yesterday. That temptation as a whole, I've got to see this as a linear thing, and I've got to recognize a lot of things come down to the precautions of my life. As we're running out of time, I've got to keep moving. I've got to look for the way out. Let me give you number two here by giving you this passage from Ephesians chapter 6, which starts with, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So I'm in a battle with the enemy, but I've got to be geared up. And when I get to today, I've got to make sure that I have all these elements on in the armor of God. And you know how it goes. It starts with a, ble- a breastplate of righteousness. The righteous decisions I make, which I believe is what the context is about. Some people debate that. The righteous decisions that I make become something that garners a strength in my life to help my battle with temptation tomorrow. Let's call this prevention. And the prevention can be something even in the moment. It's in the moment, but it's based on the past. In other words, when David talks about in Psalm 119, how a young man can keep his way pure, one of the things in the passage is, your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. You see Jesus responding to the tempter in the wilderness by quoting scripture. You could say the precaution in his life was spending time in the scripture. That's true. But the prevention in the moment was going to grab that information and utilize it in the battle. A sword is good to have, and that's a precaution to buy one and sharpen one, but you better pick it up in the battle and wield it. You follow what I'm saying? That's the distinction I'm making between precaution and the prevention. I've got to now take these these weapons of warfare, to cross an analogy that Paul said that we have in both hands, and fight with those things that God has given me. And a great study would be an even question whether or not I was going to list the armor of God as a great example of those things, but I don't have time for that. And I'm right on schedule being behind time, so let's keep going. Let's give this as a last one, and I'll throw a couple aspects to this in here. The protections, cautions, prevention, protections, protections. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There's the first one. My protection in the moment, in the action of that moment, isn't just you know, drawing on something that I've done in the past or some, whatever it might be, recalling scripture. But here, it, it, it's, it's a word to resist. I've got a word that may seem even contradictory if you know other passages like this one. Flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. Well, in that I can find three different things. Sometimes I've got to realize my point is not to roll over, but to put up a defense and fight. There's some fortitude and effort involved in this. 
Other times I need to say the poignancy of this temptation needs to be turned from and run, and we need to run from it. And everybody preaching 2 Timothy 2.22 usually goes back to the story of Potiphar's wife and Joseph. But the idea is when that temptation is there, there has to be a retreat oftentimes. A resisting of the enemy, but a retreat from the actual poignancy of whatever the passionate prompting is to, to sin. And then the third thing in this protection you can see is a substitution. Instead of these youthful passions, I've got to substitute something and pursue something else. Flee from one thing and pursue another. Righteousness, faith, love, peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart, which gets us back to not being isolated. Picking up the phone, connecting with the people of God, filling my mind with other things. Instead of this context of temptation, getting out of it and and, and fleeing to something else, that's going to engage my thoughts, my minds, and even my senses with something righteous and good. All right. I want to get to this because I think this is critical for all of us. Fight temptation. You know that. Even if you've gone through the partner's man, you know chapter 10 tries to unpack that with a number of thoughtful questions. I, I tried to make them thoughtful questions for you to think through that unpacking of that great passage in First Corinthians 10. But we're all going to fail. Before the week's up, you'll fail several times. How do we deal with that? Even though I trust your failures now will be on a path of growing sanctification, perhaps not as severe as it was 10 years ago or 5 years ago or even 5 months ago. But when we fail, what, what do we do? A couple things here. First of all, we've got to confess and be very clear about that confession. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and, and just to forgive us, forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's a verse we teach our kids and you've known it for years. But let's unpack what this means to confess it. And what I want to do in utilizing a passage of scripture is Hosea 14. So since most things have been on the screen, I want you to turn to this one, if you would, and, and look at this passage in Hosea 14. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. This is 12 books from the end of the Old Testament. So go to Matthew and turn back and you'll get there. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos. We're in it now, are we not? Are we still reading Hosea? I can't remember in our DBR. Been a hard-hitting book, has it not? huge. I was talking to somebody about it today, just the things we've been reading in Hosea. Boy, if our Christian community could read Hosea like 10 times and just see the severity of God, then I think we would appreciate the kindness of God in a new way. As Paul said, we've got to note the severity and the kindness of God at a new level. Let's get, what do I have? Five quick things out of this text that I think will illustrate the admission or the confession of our sin and how we respond. After all this hard-hitting stuff, He says, return, verse 1, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled uh, because of your iniquity. Let's just put it down this way to start, to admit the sin. You've stumbled, you've got iniquity, you know what it is. To put it in terms of, of confession, which is even a word that includes the word to speak, to say the same thing. And I often say that when I quote First uh, John one nine, homo logia, homo the same, logia to speak, to speak the same thing, to comment the same way God would comment on the failure you just had. What would He say about it? Say the same thing. That's why verse two says, "Take your words with you and return to the Lord." You got to admit it's a problem and that you can call it iniquity. It's not a mistake. It's a transgression. It's a sin. And then we ask for that forgiveness. Verse two, we take our words. And we say what? Here it comes. Take away all iniquity. Here's the quote. Here's the guidance from God via the prophet. You want to get right with God? You've sinned. Call sin, sin. You know you've stumbled into it. Take your words, return to him and tell him. First thing, this is wrong. Can you take away the 
guilt of my sin, the iniquity of my sin. Bottom of verse 2. And accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Accept what is good. Okay, we want to do good now. And we will pay with the bulls the vow, with bulls, the vow of our lips. We want to bring our sacrifice to God because we promise. That's what a vow is. We promise to do this. We want to do it now. And we want you to accept it because now we're going to stop this iniquity and we're going to start doing righteousness. Admit the sin, ask for forgiveness, resolve to do right. Now note this in in verse three, Assyria shall not save us. Okay. Now this is, by the way, Hosea and Amos are the only two prophets that go to the Northern kingdom. Northern kingdom was assaulted by the Assyrians in the eighth century BC. Most of the prophets are dealing with the Southern portion of Israel and Judah. So we have all these prophets in the southern kingdom. Hosea is dealing with the Assyrian problem. And the Assyrians were threatening them. They had an opportunity to say, well, we'll just make concessions. We can trust in their kindness. We can make some kind of treaty. And, and he says, listen, just notice the problem of the sinful nation coming against you. You know you've sinned. You may feel more of a kinship to trust in them. That's not a good thing. That's something that you're going to say now. We know our trust is not there. We will not ride on horses, those Assyrian horses. We will say no more our God to the work of our hands. See, when the northern tribes of Israel were condemned by the prophets, they were condemned, as we've been reading, for their idolatry and their misplaced trust. Idolatry, in this case, is saying, God, help us. You're going to be our our good luck charm here to something that isn't God. We're going to put our confidence in, in something else. They're saying we're repudiating that. And I think in our sin, every time we sin, there's something about our misplaced trust. And when we confess our sin, we need to admit it. We need to ask God to forgive us. We need to say, God, we're going to do right now. And we need to go a layer deeper than that and start saying, God, here's how my trust was misplaced. Here's the place where I put confidence in something that I thought was going to do something for me or do something that would, that would make me whole or complete or fulfilled or whatever it might be. And I know that's not right. As, I, as Asaph says in Psalm 73, God wants to be those things for us. God wants to be the thing that makes me say on this earth, I don't need anything. As he says, the, the sin of his people was they dug out these wells and tried to have these cisterns that would fulfill them when he's the spring of living water. You're going to the wrong place. And every time we sin, whether it's gossip, whether it's lust, whether it's, you know, whatever it is, is something that's going to try in our thinking... Our trust is in a place where we think we're trusting in this that we know is prohibited to do something that God has said, I'm going to do that. I'm going to be the fulfillment for you. The righteous path for you will accomplish in your life the things that you're trying to accomplish through the temptation of these sins. So the the failure of trust is the way I like to put it. You need to identify that. Bottom of verse 3. This seems almost out of place. In, In you, the orphan finds mercy. What's that about? Okay, now it's taking someone who's sinning, who's trying to find his path in in something that God has prohibited, looking at the sinful Assyrians and saying, maybe I'm better off trusting in them. And and he's saying, oh, now what? I've done wrong. I'm going to do right. Forgive me, God. And you know what? When I think about who I'm coming to in this forgiveness, you're the God who provides mercy and kindness and you, 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 you help the, the, the fatherless. You're the merciful, gracious God. There's not a time we ask for forgiveness and try to seek a confession with God where we shouldn't end with an affirmation of his grace. Because if you don't end with the affirmation of grace going, look who I'm coming to, the forgiving, merciful God, I guarantee you, you'll get up from that prayer and doubt his forgiveness. And God takes offense to that. At some point, 
when you keep saying, God, forgive me again. I'm, God, you keep asking forgiveness for the same sin. You've never affirmed the grace of God in the process of your confession. Confession, just to use the paradigm of Hosea 14, admitting sin, asking for forgiveness, resolving to do right, identifying the failure of trust, and then affirming the grace of God, the mercy of God, accepting that forgiveness from God by affirming his character. One more thing, letter B, we've got to repent. We have to repent. Now, the passage I want you to turn to now is 2 Corinthians 7, verses 10 and 11. Let's build another paradigm from this example, this passage about repentance and repenting and turning from sin. Of course, you know confession is to agree with God and repentance is to turn from sin. Well, let's look at the components that are spelled out here in this passage, noting that the context is speaking to the church that had egregious sin in an individual that they failed to address and they had addressed it at this point and he's praising them for the fact that he confronted them, they felt bad about it, and they responded to it obediently. And yet you can take these elements and recognize we do these same things in our own life if we respond to sin with genuine biblical repentance. Okay, let's start in verse 10 and get seven quick things here. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, both with a big S and a small s, gets me out of this sin problem or saves me from all my sin you know, judicially. This is both sanctification and justification principle. Godly grief without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. There's nothing good in that. There's no good end in that. But we do know it involves grief. And so that's a good place to start. Number one, grief. Real repentance is going to have some level of grief. Doesn't mean we need to share a bucket of tears, but it does mean that I'm looking at my sin. And as I come to repentance, there's a bad feeling in my heart about the reality of this problem, about the sin that that grieves God. Now he lists a bunch of things. Verse 11 now. He says, for see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. Feeling bad about this, seeing it for what it is, creates an earnestness. What does that mean? Sincerity. There's a sincerity. You've had people, if you've raised kids, you've obviously raised kids, and you've taught them that to get out of this problem, you need to confess it and repent, whatever it might be, and you've watched insincere repentance. You know what it is to utter the words and not, not own the problem. You've done it yourself. You see it dramatically played out with little kids, and you realize that what we want is a sincerity in this. And he's saying the pain over your sin has produced this real, genuine, of course it's a rhetorical, what earnestness it is amazing it's 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 bonafide it's real it's the kind of earnestness and sincerity that we ought to have produced with a pain over the fact that we've sinned thirdly it says what eagerness to clear yourselves you are so ready to say i want to make this right i got to get this off my account it's the same thing we saw with confession his desire to make things right it's this desire to move forward and say the wrong's going away the right's going to replace it it's it's an eagerness to clear yourself Yeah, you're a liar. Well, I'm going to clear myself from that by repenting of that moving forward. I've agreed with God about my sin. Now I'm turning from it, and I'm eager to see that description, that characterization change. Look at the next word. What indignation. Indignation. You should be mad at the sin you're repenting of. I know some people, we see it, everyone. Let's talk in the first person. Easy for me to look at sin and sometimes say, God, I'm sorry I did that. Yeah, but I, that guy said those things, but that guy really deserved it. You know, there's not a, I'm not mad at what I said. I'm not mad at, at the outburst. I'm not mad at whatever it might be, the impatience, because I'm now justifying it in my own mind. I'm not really mad at the sin. And there ought to be that indignation, that righteous anger about the problem. Number five, what fear, right? What fear, yeah, this could be, Fear on several levels, he doesn't define it. 
But there should be concern about the effects of sin. There should be fear when I read to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 that some people are weak, sick, and have even died because of their sin. I should, I should tremble at that. As, as Peter says, I should live my life in fear knowing I have a righteous judge as a father. That ought to create that uneasiness. And when I think about sin in my life, it ought to give me concern for the effects of sin. It could be anything on the right-hand column on the front side. The displeasure of God, the blasphemy that people will have against the church, the, the corruption it creates in relationships and in people, the guilt, the grief, concern for the effects of sin. Look at the next thing. What longing and what zeal, right? Those are somewhat synonymous, but they give me that same idea again of that longing to write. I'm, I'm, I'm all about it. I'm bound up to see this thing that I've done wrong be reversed by heading in the opposite direction. And then it ends with this, what punishment? Now, again, you remember, as I said, this was an issue in the church about a guy that needed to be corrected and disciplined in the church. And he says, what punishment? At every point, you prove yourself to be innocent in the matter. You've reversed your account. And one of the last things was you were willing to go and do what you were supposed to do in this person's life. Now, you could say, certainly... When it comes to your own life, if you try to apply this paradigm to your sin and your confession and repentance, well, it means that you're willing to accept the consequences. You see that lived out even in David's life when God judges David for the consequence of his sin with Bathsheba, saying the baby's going to die. And he pleads that God would not have the baby die. But when the baby dies, he freaks everybody out because he gets up, washes his face, and now he's ready to go back to to, to life. Why? Because in his own heart, he's accepted the consequence. He's going to grieve the loss of that kid his whole life. He certainly will. But there is that resolve to know this is what the sin has cost. I'm willing to accept it. In that case, of course, it's an offender in the church in our lives. That punishment, that willingness to see it made right. A lot of talk about sin and humanity in general. I wanted to bring it back down to where we live every day. I want you and I want myself to live increasingly righteous lives. It's what God has called us to. It's what the Spirit is in our life to help affect. Why do we want to do that? Why is it so hard? How do we do it? And inevitably we'll fall, but God wants us to get back up. What I tried to paint in number four here was you want to know what righteous response to sin looks like. That's what it looks like. Confession and repentance and those elements, I hope. Even as responding rightly to sin, we'll see some sense of progress in our spiritual lives and feel some satisfaction about that, that God is working in my life a better response to sin than I used to have. All right, let's pray. God, thanks for this uh, semester. Thanks that as we get to the end of this, we start to think about the fallenness of our own lives, the temptations that we're subject to, the weaknesses of our own flesh, the world that keeps beckoning us to compromise. And so, God, we want to fight temptation, recognizing what it is in our lives. It's common to man. Everybody's got the same kinds of battles, and even in this room, the same exact temptations. But you're a faithful God. You won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. And with every temptation, you provide a way of escape. And for some of us, it starts tonight by taking those precautions and gearing up tomorrow morning with the right preventative steps and and making sure that in our lives, we're willing to fight these battles with a, a thoughtfulness to resist the devil, to flee from these passions, to replace these things that beckon us to engage in them that are wrong. And we know they're wrong with things that are right, pursuing love and faithfulness and godliness and connecting with all those that we know have that same passion to do right, to those who call on God from a pure heart. And God, I know that failure in the Christian life, the more we love you, the more it hurts. The more we're growing, the more it devastates our own heart to look in the mirror and see that we've sinned again. But God, I pray that just our quick survey here in Hosea 14 and this great passage about repentance to the Corinthians would encourage us to respond rightly to sin and get back on the beam 
to realize that you're a gracious God. And when we stop seeing confession and repentance, then there's a serious problem. So what we really want is to be sensitive to sin. We'd like to win more battles, but when we lose them, God, give us that right response to sin. Thanks for this crowd, God. Thanks for their heart for you to learn your word, to learn about your word. And as we did this survey from all over the scripture tonight, I just pray it would bear fruit in our lives. Bring to mind elements of this message, elements of this outline that will aid us in walking forward with you and even maybe being more open with our brothers and sisters in Christ, not to be dramatic and have testimony night and air out our dirty laundry, but to encourage and exhort one another, be willing to pray for one another and with one another about the problems and temptations we face. God, our world is getting darker. It's getting worse. We need the church to shine brighter. We need our lives to each be salty, as, as it says, to have that effect, that saltiness that makes an impact. We certainly don't want to be called good for nothing, as that passage says we would be if we had no efforts and progress in the direction of of increasing holiness. So God, as we think about fallen humanity as a subject for study, we want to make sure that we are making progress in our own lives of fighting the fallenness and standing up against the temptations in our lives. Give us power to resist and wisdom to flee and a discipline every day to pursue righteousness in Jesus' name.